from Voice of Vashon, KVSH, and MarchTwisdale.com, where you can listen to the show 24-7, I am March Twisdale, your host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today, I have invited Betsy Bell, a local author of a newly published book titled Open Borders, to join me. Betsy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Pleased to be here talking with you and your audience. And um, just wanted to tell you that I moved to Seattle back in 1969 when it was kind of a sleepy little place. And um, it's been changed a great deal since then. And I've loved being in the Northwest all these years. Raised my family of four daughters here. And I've been married to two wonderful men, both of whom, unfortunately, have died. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, and I'm so, you are in West Seattle right now, correct? I live in West Seattle. I, I raised my family with my first husband, Alden Bell, who is one of the subjects of this book, uh, in Montlake, where he could walk to the university and um, our children could ride the bus to their schools and I could bicycle downtown to work. And we it was a pretty... Uh, environmentally wonderful life. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, you know, the Pacific Northwest has been a beautiful place to live for, well, thousands of years, <laughs> to yeah, be honest. exactly. And um, let's see, so thank you so much for joining us. We are going to be covering a number of different things that are going to span many decades. So I'm excited to be able to talk to you and receive sort of a first-person perspective on some really hugely important aspects of everything from what's going on in America to literally geopolitical type of affairs. So why don't we go ahead and start off with a quick introduction to your book, you know, just sort of give our listeners a sense of what the book is about. Well, Open Borders is a personal story of love, loss, and anti-war activism, and it grew out of the rather sudden realization uh, in 1981 or so that Seattle was the primary target of incoming nuclear missiles should a nuclear war start. Because we, had, we experienced in Seattle the arrival of the first nuclear submarine. We now have enough firepower in Bremerton to um, probably destroy the whole planet. And that first submarine came into town and it was really clear that um, the possibility of, of a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union which was this massive uh, joining together of a lot of uh, countries in Central Asia and uh, Russia itself into a union of Soviet republics. And uh, the head of that was Khrushchev, and he was uh, having a saber-rattling dialogue with uh, the United States presidents, Carter, uh, and before him, I'm sure people remember from their history books about the Bay of Pigs and the nuclear threat that Kennedy managed to deflect. And so we were pretty remote in Seattle from all of that. It all seemed to be happening on the East Coast, and nobody was very worried about it here. But then when this nuclear Trident submarine base came into uh, the Hood Canal and stationed itself over there near Bremerton, uh, people started to freak out. And if you can picture your elementary school children practicing duck and cover and getting under their desks or lining up in the hall of the school and putting their heads next to their lockers and their feet in the center and waiting until the all clear was sounded 
people were building fallout shelters in their backyards. Mm-hmm. There were right. uh, you know, magazine uh, descriptions and plans. You could get from the government a plan on how to build a fallout shelter that was supposed to protect you from a nuclear warhead coming into your area. Right. This was pretty, really pretty happening. Times. It's, it's mm-hmm. a really good point you bring up that it is. it was a very real threat in the minds and hearts of tens of millions of people who lived in this country and other countries. And I think yes. many people, what would you say? Probably about, I would say like everyone under the age of 50 has very few true personal memories. You know, I, I'm right on the edge of that. And I, I grew up with this vague awareness. And I remember a couple of their books were really popular about, you know, kids surviving you know, a bomb that hits L.A. and how do they survive? I mean, that was sort of like something I read a few books about. But then yes. when the wall came down, a lot of the tension just sort of petered out. Exactly. So, exactly. yeah. So now in your story overview, you and you mentioned earlier, you, you mentioned Bremerton. What, what you were saying, I'm not sure it was completely clear, is that the first submarine arrived then, but currently at this moment, and many people may not realize this, we have a, a vast arsenal of nuclear weaponry located in Bremerton. Yes, and we have so, eight eight nuclear submarines. Each one carries enough firepower to destroy many, many cities and kill many people. Right. And they're sitting right over there in Bremerton, ready at all times. And something that needs to be protected should anyone try to attack or, or take advantage of those, those weapons. Yes. So in, back in the, in the 80s, when people in Seattle realized this threat, and why we are ground zero, we are a target. We, we are a target for military in, in, uh, invasion by nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And this was a terrifying thing. People were having nightmares. They were having, um, the children were coming home and talking to their parents about how, is how scary this was. There is a whole collection of children's art that a psychologist, a child psychologist pulled together from this period, which indicates just how frightened children were mm-hmm. of this, this whole possibility. You guys decided to embark on a trip to Tashkent, and I'm curious, I'd like to go back a little bit. It is stated that Tashkent, which is in Uzbekistan, is Seattle's sister city. Do you know how we came to have that relationship of sister cities with Tashkent? I do. It's a a fascinating story. It actually started in 1973. Mayor Ullman was approached by Alaska Airlines, and the mayor of Tashkent was invited to come to the United States, and there, it was really a commercial effort. Uh, the, the idea was that there were sister city pairings beginning to be develop uh, around the world, and Alaska wanted to open some air routes into Central Asia, and they said, well, why don't, you just, why don't we just have a sister city, and how about, how about Tashkent in Uzbekistan? And, of course, that has nothing to do with the United States or with Seattle. In the Pacific Northwest, it's a landlocked uh, state, a province of the Soviet Union back then. There's nothing to compare it to us at all. But you know what? It came together. It was an exciting idea, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and everybody agreed to it. And um, within, 
year or so, there were several um, delegations back and forth. There was a fishing operation that got started with some Soviet fishermen. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was it, was it wasn't political at all. It was purely commercial and cultural. It was never political. The whole idea was to exchange cultural and commercial opportunities with each other. So I'm a little curious that the USSR as an entity that is sort of in the middle of, as you said, you know, saber rattling threat um, mongering with the saber rattling threat mongering leaders of the United States of America. I'm surprised that they would even entertain the idea of allowing commercial and casual citizenry to form a relationship with a city within their borders. Do you know anything about sort of the backstory of why the USSR allowed this to happen? No, I really don't. You know, Seattle was far away from Washington, D.C., and Uzbekistan, far away from Moscow. Remember, we're in a time when there's no computers. Uh There's no cell phones. There's no social media. Mm-hmm. To get a call, a phone call over to Tashkent was a major operation. Right. So um, the, yeah. e- email, was, email was just beginning. By uh, 1986, they had email. Uh, that we, we were able to establish some email connections, internet yeah. connections. Yeah. But you're, we're talking about a period of time when we were so out of the ra- off the radar as far as Washington, D.C. was concerned, and um, Dwight D. Eisenhower is the president who established the sister city arrangements. Mm-hmm. He felt that that was the way to ensure the peace after the Second World War mm-hmm. was to was to get cities around the world to become paired and get to know each other and do cultural mm-hmm. exchanges with each other. Right. So there was already tacit federal support for it on our end. And okay, there was every yeah. president. Every president of the United States becomes the head of the International Sister City Organization. Oh, lovely. It's a, it's a de facto position that they hold. Well, let's hope that things are going okay with them right now. <laughs> okay. So no, it, it, it mm. was in, it was in August of 1971 that Tashkent, Irkutsk, and Sochi visited Seattle as a promotional tour by Alaska Airlines, mm-hmm. and it was a din- at a dinner with Mayor Oman that the sister city affiliation right. was suggested and then was established uh, a year later. Okay, so it's a non-political situation, and yet under the umbrella of politics comes the concept of advocating for peace. And so you and a group of other people came up with a plan to deliver peace letters to people in Tashkent, is what it says happens in section one of the book. Well, let me let me go back and explain a little bit to the reader, to the listener about this. Yes, yes. What happened, the, the sequence of events is that once we realized in Seattle that we were a target, a group of people gathered together in, in a, a living room up on Capitol Hill in Kay Bullitt's home. Her family was, owned the King Television Station and um, where she was one of the leading women in the city for many, many years. In, at this meeting, we had the International YMCA representative, we had labor, we had um, business representative, people from the university, and my husband was there, Alden Bell, and they, it together, after several meetings, decided that we as citizens in Seattle need to take a look at what are the possibilities of nuclear war. They, they organized, I shouldn't say we, I was a bystander at this point, they organized a citizen engagement 
events, a week long of them with lectures downtown and at the university, noon and night. And it was called Target Seattle, Preventing Nuclear War. The idea was to look at every possible way of preventing nuclear war. Now, our government wanted peace through strength. That was Reagan's strategy. Have a strong military, have a big armament, and keep people subdued around the world out mm-hmm. of fear of our potential firepower. Right. There was the, there was the uh, freeze campaign, the nuclear freeze campaign. There was a, the Mennonites had a, uh, the idea of uh, unilateral disarmament. Mm-hmm. We'll get rid of all ours and hope the rest of the world will get rid of theirs. Mm-hmm. So we had speakers on every single topic. And the primary organizers of all this were the Physicians for Social Responsibility. I love that group. Yes. And yeah, Helen yeah. Caldicott, an Australian pediatrician, a very charismatic speaker, was on the circuit around the world describing how damaged the human body would be if it was in the range of a nuclear fallout. Mm-hmm. In graphic details, she said, our work as physicians is to prevent harm. Potential nuclear war is the greatest harm that human bodies and the planet could sustain. So that was the whole thing. Now, it's as part of this educational event that stretched out over a week, three women wrote a letter, a kind of a love letter, to the Soviet Union, to people in the Soviet Union. And then they decided that we should send this to Tashkent. And in fact, this letter at the bottom says, if you sign this letter, we'll make sure that it gets to the people in the Soviet Union and especially in Tashkent. And this letter says, the people of Seattle and Tashkent are united through the Sister City Program, through our love for our cities, through the hopes we share for our children's futures. Yet if there is nuclear war, all that we value would be destroyed. We must work together to create peaceful means of resolving conflicts and take steps to reduce the danger of nuclear war. Now, we circulated this letter in schools and churches and every venue that Target Seattle and educational events put on. By the time the final kingdom, some of you don't know there was a kingdom here in Seattle. It was oh. a large coverage sports arena. Well, most and of that us had, know that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and our final event, we had 20,000 people in the kingdom, and we carried these letters up and down the aisles. We collected 30,000 signatures on 3,000 pieces of paper. Wow. Now, After this whole educational event was over, the committee sat in Cable's living room with all these pieces of paper. What would we do with them? Right. If we sent them in a box to Tashkent, they would probably be tossed in the wastebasket. Mm -hmm. Virginia McDermott, who was the co-chair with my husband, Don Bell, I tried to get them with a delegation and missed the opportunity. So we sat there in the living room. We said, well, why don't we just go? We're, we, we could have a tour. We could, we could create a tour to Moscow, Tashkent, Samarkand, and Leningrad. You've got that airline sisterhood thing going on, right? Yeah, you know, you right. might as well actually yeah. use it. Sure, of course Right, not. right. So let's go. And it was kind of a lark. You know, who knows what we could do? So we, weren't, we didn't think of ourselves as peace emissaries. We had this letter to deliver. We promised every single person who signed this that it would get in the hands of somebody in the Soviet Union. 
Mm-hmm. So right. we just everybody paid their money. The, the holiday travel, which is no longer in existence, they they've arranged a tour for us. We took our own translator, a young woman from the Jackson School in, at the University of Washington, who was my husband's translator throughout the whole thing. Of course, they provided a, a translator, and they also had a KGB agent with us when we went got to Moscow. Part, first part of the book describes this whole decision-making process making our flight arrangements, getting on the airplane, getting to Moscow and seeing the head of the Soviet Peace Committee and showing him the letter. And then when we the second part, we get to Tashkent and we actually pass the letter out in a public market to people on the streets. And you, March, you would not believe what happened. Yeah. Just because the letter was written both in Russian and in English. Right. They started to read it. Their faces, first of all, it's against the law to distribute literature on the streets in the Soviet Union. But we, did, we didn't ask permission. We just started passing out the letters. And you were People currently came. in the city of Tashkent. We're in the city of Tashkent. Okay, we're in the, so... the, big, the big public market. And so there's right. vendors everywhere, people shopping everywhere. And it's against the law at that time in the USSR for anyone, including citizens of the USSR and the territories or whatever yeah. they were called, to actually print words on paper and hand them out in public places. Yes. Okay. Against the law. Got it. Yeah. So the people came, they stood and read the letter. Then they'd get their friends to come over. Then they'd get more people to come over. One little boy came up on his bicycle, got the letter, took it off, came back with three more kids on their bicycles. Some children came with sweets and said, I'll give you a sweet. If, and of course, they didn't speak any English and we didn't speak any Russian. We had several Russian speaking people with us. Right. It was just like this love fest. Yeah. I was. And in fact, I wandered off from the rest of the group, which is kind of my style, and a police officer came and took me by the arm and tried to wrench all these papers out of my arm. And then our our guide saw me uh, in trouble, came and explained to the police officer that I had permission to do this, and he shooed me away and maybe maybe paid the guy off. I have no idea. I didn't stay. I didn't stay to watch. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that. That was a a pretty exciting moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. In the story overview, you say that you and your husband had a disagreement about carrying two clandestine letters to Russian Jews. And that sounds like it may or may not have been different from the other letters. Or what's the deal with that? Okay. The, the, the petitions, the peace, the peace letters were open and everyone had them in their suitcases. So we went when we went through customs at the border right. uh, in Moscow. They were all visible and everyone had a packet in their suitcase. These other two letters were brought to us by a Jewish person in Seattle. But I'll just ex- explain a little bit about Refuseniks. Refuseniks was the name given to Soviet Jews who wanted exit visas so they could go to Israel. And once they mm-hmm. applied for an exit visa, they were not released to go to Israel. They were held as pawns in this battle of words between the Kremlin and the White House. The, the Soviet government wanted the most favored nation trade treaty with the United States, mm-hmm. and we weren't going to give it to them unless they let these Soviet Jews with exit visas, leave the country and go to Israel. Mm-hmm. So they, were, they became pawns in an international struggle 
uh, between the two heavy hitters, the two nations. The Jewish communities around the United States were trying to get messages of hope and reassurance that we were doing everything we could to help them. But the Soviets, if they found these letters on your person as a traveler, you could get told to leave the country immediately. Mm-hmm. So it was a big risk to accept these letters. And the opening scene of the book is a discussion between my husband and me where he has been sitting with these letters and not telling me. And at the last minute saying, I don't know whether we should take them or not. I said, we have to take them. It's really important to me to do this. So, so we carry these with us all the way into Leningrad before we uh, take them out and put them in envelopes and, and mail them. And they're, they're tucked mm-hmm. inside a, a, um, a film canister and carried by our young photographer mm-hmm. who is uh, traveling with us. So the Refuseniks were not like locked up or anything. They just weren't given their exit visas, and they'd been identified so that the Soviet Union could use them as leverage, basically. Right. So no, they didn't want to give us visas. Who didn't? Our State Department. But but we said we're just going as tourists. No other reason. We're going as tourists, and so they they couldn't. They couldn't stop us, really. Right. But just imagine, I want everyone out there who's listening right now to just imagine that you want to go to the next state over. You want to go visit your family in Southern California. And for 30 years, you can't visit them and they can't visit you. Or, you know, just you can't leave. You're stuck in Washington State. You're going to be here. You can't cross any of the borders. And we will shoot to kill if you try. Right. Right. That was the authentic reality that hundreds of millions of people lived with. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The people in East Germany, of course, that was a terrible time for them. The author's name is Betsy Bell. And if you want to learn more, you can go to her website. She's got a new one coming up, but the current website that talks all about the book is openborderswithlove.com. The book, of course, is called Open Borders. So, folks, you can check out this book, hear a story that is relevant to our local area here in the Puget Sound. Very relevant. And now let's talk a little bit about another aspect of your book and your life that is also super relevant given the um, coming to a head of deep issues that are underlying the Me Too movement and everything that's happening right now as sort of women in this culture are saying enough is enough is enough is enough. We're just done with this. So um, you in the early 70s and 80s is when this was all sort of going on. And you and your husband had some various disagreements. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's, you know, I was I was raised in the 50s. And I came into a marriage at age 19 with the idea that the wife is subservient to the husband. And yet I wanted a career. I wanted a career very badly. And I've, I've got a master's degree in college and prepared myself for one and began one. And then I moved to the Seattle, to the Northwest with him and my children because he had a job change and yeah. I couldn't follow I couldn't follow my career. So there's this push pull of trying to be the best support wife and good mother and at the same time champing at the bit to have my own thing, mm-hmm. my own career, my own something of my own in the world. And this gets played out in the book because mm-hmm. after our trip, I had a chance to help create a slideshow and then take it 
about a slideshow about our experience in Uzbekistan and in Moscow and and uh, Leningrad, mm-hmm. and take that to the East Coast and show it at the UN and in Philadelphia and in New York City, other places in New York City, and also in Washington D.C. and talk to people about the importance of friendship across borders. Mm-hmm. So it was it became my thing to do. So let me check and in was, here really quickly. So you got your master's degree early on yeah. in your marriage and actually yeah. while you were initially having the first couple I'm assuming of your kids. Yes. And then when you came to the Seattle area, you already had your degree, but I'm assuming now you're hitting baby three, baby four. I mean, four kids is actually a tremendously huge full-time job. And it's a full-time so, job. Yeah. Absolutely. So when in that span of things, since your one child was 17, when you went to the um, city of Tashkent originally, um, at what point were you given that opportunity to sort of like go out and do this slideshow in your parenting career, so to speak? Well, I did that right after the trip. And mm-hmm. the, the kids were pretty much launched by then. So the youngest was 17? Yes. Great. Yeah. Okay, so so even then, at the point where the kids are pretty much off and running, it was a bit of a challenge for your husband to envision you perhaps stepping out onto the international scene yeah. and moving forward with this project. You know, I, I honestly think the struggle was mostly internal to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my husband was a pretty open person. He probably would have supported me in more independence earlier on. But I, it was my own internal struggle. I think mm-hmm. for women, it's the opportunities may come our way, but we have this, many of us have this internal notion that we can't go out and be independent mm-hmm. and because it's just not the right thing to do. And so I had to change my internal structures mm-hmm. to, be, to believe I could earn good money, Mm -hmm. When I did get a career, I I was actually earning more money than he was at the university, Mm -hmm. and he was fine with that. He never had any problems with my being independent. Mm -hmm. It was inside my own head where the struggle struggle played out. Well, and when the kids are younger, I can see, you know, there's a, like, there's a, there was a period of time when my kids were young. I think they were about three and and young baby, you know, four and one. And, um, and I started to build, potentially build a career for myself. I started working outside of the home and I would be doing great. Very, very good at what I do. You know, I'm very good as a dance teacher. I'm, I was very good as a presenter and an educator in other fields. Very, very good at what I did, but I could not in this one aspect of my life, I could not bring my children with me. And I was nursing mother as well. So, you know, I would yeah. I would nurse the baby before I left. I'm like, okay, he can make it four hours. I'll be back. But, you know, at two hours and 45 minutes in, he wakes up and Papa just wasn't enough. And it was really right. hard on my husband when I would come home at, you know, 1030 at night, because that's, of course, is the evening time that I'm trying to work because he's gone all day at his job. And my husband's right. just standing there, not mad at me, once again, not mad, no. but holding no. our infant son who's just screaming his head off and freaking out because mom isn't there. So, I mean, yeah. that's different. That's where the, the woman who has the opportunity to stay home says yes. the trade-off isn't, uh, I didn't, isn't enough. I didn't, I didn't stay home then. I, I taught from the between babies two and three. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I taught at the University of Kansas the whole time until, until we came to Seattle. Right. I, was, I worked. And, right. then, and when the youngest became, was six years old, I went back to work. Mm-hmm. 
And yet still, it was a challenge for you to feel like what you were doing was what? As legitimate but, as what your husband was doing, or as valuable, or what? What do you think was the internal valuable. conflict? I always felt I always felt that it was a privilege to work, not a necessity. Mm-hmm. That it was that he was offering me this opportunity uh, rather than saying we're in this as a team. Right. So when, now he he died at, uh, at age sixty two, and when he as he approached his death, I felt as though we reached this new relationship where we were a team. And it would have been possible if he had been able to survive cancer for us to move forward in a new place where both of us had full agency over our lives Mm -hmm. and our futures and our careers Mm -hmm. and were able to be partners in that. But it hadn't happened prior to his death. And if you don't mind me asking, what year were you born? I was born in 1937, so I'm 81 now. Right. So you're actually older than my mother. I'm very familiar. My mother was born, I think, in like 49, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And um, I have this, I have all of my memories of what her generation dealt with, which I think is similar to what your generation was. I don't think you guys are that far apart. And it was really fascinating to see from my perspective as a child, being raised by a woman who had lived through as a child herself, really sort of the the horrors that occurred on a regular basis to women who were deeply yes. disenfranchised in the 40s yes. and the 50s and the 60s. Yes. And when her stepfather just up and decided he wasn't interested anymore and he left, he took himself, he took the car, he took the money with him and just left behind, you know, a woman with two kids and... There was virtually no social support structure out there to help out, you know. And so I think I understand why, you know, it makes so much sense that the original push for women's rights. And in Germany, I believe the direction they went is that they went towards demanding that the society recognize their value. And they demanded tax-based programs that would actually support women, whereas our system yes. seemed to go with, we're going to prove that we're as good as the guys by going out and doing what the guys do. I know, which is not really that great. <laughs> it's yeah. not really that great, yeah. Yeah, and when you grew up in my generation as a child, what you grew up with was a whole bunch of kids who were running around the streets with neither parent at home because they were all out trying to prove that they could, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, it was really interesting watching that sort of, um, it just, it's been fascinating just to watch yeah. the social ebb and flow. So that's, yeah. Thank, yeah, thank you for being willing to share that personal life growth thing that you went through. Is there, um, yeah. you said that your book also includes sections that were written by other people who were part of this adventure or this event um, do you want to tell us a little bit about them? I would like to, yes. Four people who've contributed essays to this book. There are probably many more out there, uh, but I've, I chose these very specifically for what they had to offer. Uh, the first one is Dr. Rashis Doan, and he was very involved in the Target Seattle as it developed. He worked very hard with an organization called the Seattle Peace Park. So many, many people in Seattle... Children made piles, mm-hmm. and people went to Tashkent and built a park. His essay is a very clear account of Target Seattle and the six years that followed until the wall came down and the Goodwill Games came in 1990. The best way to really understand Target Seattle is to read his essay. The second essay 
was by a young man who was a reporter for The Stranger, and he was about 25 years old when he went with us on this trip. And just as a lark, you know, to see is a big adventure. Ah. So 25 years later, he's pondering, what was it like? Mm-hmm. What, where is everybody? What's happened to the everybody? Who? How has this trip that we took 25 years ago affected us and what we've done in our lives? And I thought his right. essay was really interesting. Then the third one is by Ann Stadler and Jean Anderson. Remember Jean Anderson from King Television? Personally, no, because I don't actually watch any television. I don't even have cable, but I'm sure many either. people do. Either, but... <laughs> so all you folks out there who recognize this person, go for it. <laughs> yes. The point of, the, of this uh, is that they, the two of them initiated the first international television space bridge between uh, Russia and the United States with Phil Donahue hosting a studio audience in Seattle and a man named Posner hosting a studio audience in Leningrad, now now St. Petersburg. And simultaneously, these two audiences and these two men talked back and forth across the airwaves. The first time that had ever been done on, with television was in 1985, and it had a huge effect. And one effect was that an artist was portrayed on the Soviet side named Andrei Yakolev, and my good friend Dick Carter, who taught Russian in, uh, and Spanish in the Highline School District. Right. Ooh, they, a taught, they taught Russian back then? Yep. Oh, a lot. Russian was being taught in lots and lots of schools because we were trying to get ready for the Russians. You know, it's so interesting right now because, of course, when I was going to school, the standards were, I think it was, so my mother grew up learning Latin. When I was going to yeah. school, there was still Latin and there was French and there was Spanish. It was offered. And now you can't find Latin or French usually. Spanish is still out there. And sometimes you can find Japanese or Chinese. I mean, it's like very, very fascinating. Now you're mentioning Russian was being taught then. Isn't that fun and interesting to be reminded of how much geopolitical changes can actually affect languages that are being offered up to American kids in school? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so sorry, last, go ahead. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and well, so, so the last story is um, in, in memoriam. Uh, it's a memorial to this Russian artist by my friend Dick Carter, who um, wrote it for his own personal. He just wanted to write a, 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 a memoir of, of their relationship. And he shared it with me. And I said, I would like to include this in the book because mm. your friendship, your friendship with this Russian artist, they went back and forth and met each other here in the United States and in Russia. Mm-hmm. And that friendship would never have happened if we hadn't had Target Seattle. Oh, it would never have happened. I know. Isn't that so wonderful? Yes. So, it's, yeah. it's, it's the, whole, the whole point of this, and that's the last thing in the book. The point, the point of the book, really, is to encourage people mm-hmm. to have friendships across enemy lines, to get to know people, their culture, what they love, what they hate. Mm-hmm. Just become, become friends with people across boundaries. Right. Because that is, when, that is how we're going to have a world where there's peace. History proves abundantly, including recent history, when you look at the documentation that's out there, for example, about how the CIA and other American political groups would intentionally foment small little uprisings in Middle Eastern countries and encourage, you know, people to go out and do flag burning and get a bunch of media coverage of it. And then they'd go back and they'd show it to the American public. Meanwhile, the people who were like living there, like, okay, 
it's been, you know, like months, if not years, since we've seen anything like that. And then every once in a while, it just sort of happens for like three hours and a bunch of photographers are there like, what's going on? And you find out that it was intentionally being created just to convince all of the little, normal, happy, everyday people in our country that that nation is filled with rabid haters. When the reality is that country is full of happy, normal, everyday people who are being told the same thing about us. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, The um, vice mayor of Tashkent came up to Virginia McDermott, Don's co-chair in this whole event, and said to her, we've been waiting for you for years. We've been waiting. We're so glad you came. My husband died in the war. My sons have died in the war. My father died in the war. I don't want my grandchildren to die in a war. Thank you for coming. (sighs) Yeah. 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 People yeah. to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the, the springs have something interesting that you probably can reflect upon. And that is you have definitely, even though you don't have cable and you don't watch it. No, <laughs> um, right. Right? Even, even though that's the case, one of the things that amazes me is that we as a people in this nation have been extremely well trained for many, many, many decades to believe there is value in being informed and from yeah. all of the, you know, um, leave it to Bieber's and, um, all the, all the other, um, ways in which Hollywood has created all this imagery of, of the good American family and all that stuff, you would typically see, you know, of course the, the mother dressed in a dress running around the kitchen, making food, but the men in certain decades were always coming home, sitting down, whipping open a newspaper and reading that newspaper. Why? Yeah. Because now they were informed, and that meant that they were going to be better members of society. And then we move on to people are going to come home and immediately flip on the evening news, and they're going to put in their hour, and they're going to listen to that information for the same reason. I'm now a better educated human. And then you have the internet, right? You know, people are like, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to watch this news or whatever. The, the, The thing that's never brought up is who curates your news that's right because (laughs) there are thousands of things that happen every day in just the puget sound and why is it that every evening for an hour someone decided to curate out of all that information and decided that you need to know about the two accidents the house that burned down the poor person that murdered someone the black person who was shot. I mean, you know, it's like, it's so repetitious, the topics they even choose to throw in our face, but also it's all designed to cause us not to trust our fellow people. Be scared, be anxious, don't trust. And yet there are far more stories of people helping out people all over the Puget Sound. And yet none of that gets curated into the evening news. Very, very true. So what have you seen throughout your life as you've watched sort of the media machine be used to sway political opinion? Because you said at the beginning of the interview that one of the things you wanted to talk about, the only thing we really haven't touched on yet in our notes here is why now? Why bring the book out now? <laughs> this, I, this book was just yearning to be written um, at, because I feel that the danger of nuclear war is greater now than it was in 1980. 
In fact, the international scientist organization that monitors these things just moves the doomsday clock to one minute before midnight. And, and that's based for, upon nuclear issues, not based upon yes, environmental issues based, or anything? It's based on nuclear issues. Okay, okay. And um, what, I wa- I was, what I'm hoping in my t- various talks around and so on with this book is to help people connect the dots mm-hmm. between the environmental degradation and the social services degradation mm-hmm. and the military spending. The military yeah. spending is eating up the wealth of America, and we are losing our environmental um, future, and we're losing the safety nets. Millions of people are hungry and unsheltered, mm-hmm. and um, it's where our values have gotten topsy turvy in this constant um, maintaining the peace through military buildup, and we need another way to to talk about peace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, and that's really why I, w- I wanted to write this and bring it out now because I think it's such an urgent message. Give people hope, something to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, follow follow what Congress is doing. There there are some bills before Congress right now to limit the president's uh, capacity to either retaliate or do first strike with nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. There's there's opportunities for everyone who worries about these issues to to take some action. Ask your where your money is being invested and ask your investment broker to take it out of anything that has to do with anything military. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is this is a huge thing. I I myself am guilty of having, I, you know, I have TIA CREF uh, as an annuity because of my husband's longevity at the university teaching, and they hold military contracts mm-hmm. in their portfolio. So just be aware of the narrow line we we walk between our own personal comfort and privilege, and the the future of the world and. How are we participating? How are we participating as, and hold our responsibility for that? You have seen some really um, intense anxiety written up and down times. And my goodness gracious, you were born to the generation that endured, witnessed, and was horrified by World War II. I wonder whether it's always been true that when Americans have faced a chaotic frightening, challenging time. Have we always responded in the way that we see now? Or have the responses that we see now, a lot of the um, flippant, shallow, Facebook type of, you know, one-liners and fairly adolescent behaviors, has it always (laughs) been this way during um, high-stress situations? Or is this something literally that we're dealing with that's becoming worse? You know, I don't have stats on that. Therapists I know have more work people are stressed, the anxiety level, their suicide rate is up. Then then there's people putting their head in the sand, not wanting Mm -hmm. to know anything. It's too frightening to Mm -hmm. to go there. But I mean, on a personal level, when you're personally sort of seeing how people are behaving, did it seem worse or better during Vietnam, worse or better during the, you know, the civil rights movement? What's your sense of it? My sense is that people are very adolescent right now. I see so much anger on Facebook. It's, it's frightening. And, um, it's not, it's not good. It's not discourse. No, no, it's not discourse. Right. So I I actually have in my house a a housemate who is a a Republican and a Trump supporter. And we've had some fiery conversations and both of us come back 
and say we're sorry that we were so upset, our democracy is going to crumble if you and I cannot have a civil conversation about mm-hmm. these issues. Mm-hmm. We must be able to talk to each other from our hearts about why we hold the views that we hold. Yeah. And um, If we want to do what you want to do, which is to inspire people to have hope and to believe in themselves that they can make a positive difference, then we do need to recognize the power of trust because you can't work with someone if you don't trust them. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Have a wonderful trip to Thailand. I I hope it all goes well. Yes. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to join me after your massively amazing mushroom hunting. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. And now I'm going off to listen to a wonderful Spanish jazz pianist. Ooh, like locally <laughs> in the area or on the radio? Locally. Locally. She's, she's an amazing Spanish um, jazz pianist. That is super awesome. Thank you. Thank you again, Betsy.